I hope you enjoyed lunch as much as I did. The upcoming SACPA sessions are available on the website www.sacpa.ca. This session and past sessions can be heard as podcasts on the website. The upcoming session is Can Private Land Conservation Maintain Biodiversity and Healthy Watershed in Alberta's Foothills? The speaker is Justin Thompson, who is the Executive Director of the Southern Alberta Land Trust Society. If you have any questions or comments, please place them in the box that is found in the lobby. I would like to welcome back Chelsea on the topic of bees and pollinators are they essential to our food supply. Uh, please limit your questions to one or two um, and when in your question is complete you could return to your seat. Please state your name prior to your question. Could you please come up here Chelsea and see what questions we have for you. Thanks very much, Chelsea, for telling us about the birds and the bees. No, the bees, I mean. Uh, I'm, a, I'm retired and I have hardly anything to do, so <laughs> I'm thinking about uh, starting up my little beehive in the city of Lethbridge. Uh, is that a possibility uh, to have it in your backyard if it's well hidden? And oh, what, what's, uh, what's your take on that? All right, this is, this is a really big topic, so I'll talk about it for a minute. This will be my next SACPA talk, bees in Lethbridge. So, honey beekeeping is prohibited by bylaw within the city limits of Lethbridge. Honey bees are considered to be livestock, uh, and so we're not allowed, technically, to have them here. It's a complaint-driven bylaw. So what that means is, we do not have bylaw officers that go and inspect our backyards, uh, every week to make sure that we aren't keeping rogue honeybee colonies. So, beekeeping is not allowed in the city of Lethbridge. However, if you aren't a jerk to your neighbors and you're a responsible beekeeper, the city isn't going to know about it. So, I am not necessarily someone who is in favor of pushing through legislation because what we have when we bring a lot of attention to, oh, you could be a beekeeper, we get a lot of crummy beekeepers. Um, even sometimes if you require them to take a course and blah, 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 it doesn't mean they're all gonna be good beekeepers. So I say right now, if the only thing stopping you from keeping bees, you've done all your research, you know what you're gonna do if something goes wrong, you've been mentored, you know where you're gonna find a replacement queen, if you have all those pieces in place and the only thing stopping you from keeping bees is the bylaw, this is what I always say to that. I don't say anything, I do this. Right? You got nothing on record for me. The session is recorded, but what, I didn't say anything, right? Okay, there we go. So my name is Mark Edel. Hello. About 30 or 40 years ago, the big uh, bees in the news were the Africanized bees. Yeah. And the big fear that they're going to come and take over all our bees, and they're, they're so aggressive. So whatever happened to that? Do you know if the bees ever made it up to Canada? Sure, I can talk about Africanized bees for a second. So uh, Africanized bees are... Um, they are honeybees, so they are a, a type of honeybees, um, and they are characterized by being extremely aggressive, being extremely swarm-prone, 
being very uh, hardy and resistant to pests, particularly varroa mites. So that is what an Africanized honeybee is. They are most climate adapted to warm areas. So in the southern states, they have a lot more, I won't necessarily say problems, because not everybody sees it as a, as a problem, um, but they do have more Africanized bees in the southern states, and they have been very slowly creeping northward, bre breeding with our bees and that kind of thing. Um, I don't know how far their progress has, has gone. Um, I mean, with climate change, there's a very real possibility that we end up with Africanized bees in Canada. Um, but all of the same things apply as before. Like we can't, we have to have a proportionate sense of caution about it. And if you're keeping Africanized bees, there's a greater proportion of caution that you should have, right? Um, but a lot of people have been beekeeping them um, in, in Central and Southern America. They beekeep Africanized bees and they are good producers and they are strong, hardy bees. So does that answer your question, Mark? Yeah. Thank you. My name is Larry Alford. That was a wonderful presentation. For a fill-in speaker, you did very well. Thanks, Larry. Uh, it, tell us if it's a topic for another SACPA presentation or comment, if you will, about intensive agriculture, monoculture, uh, the bee cutting, the, the leaf cutting bee industry that I understand in southern Alberta is a multi-million dollar industry where bees are shipped in, put in fields to work on canola and then taken back. Um, and is the word neocontinoids, is that the, the right word for the type of close? Yeah. Neo, thank you. Neonicotinoid, I think Neonicotinoid. is how they say it. Okay. Yeah. Can you comment about that and the, the uh, effects maybe that we read about? In, in oh, my goodness. All right. You're supposed to limit it to less than five at least, Larry. Jeez Louise. Okay. Uh, so um, here, this is my personal philosophy, I guess. Big anything kind of sucks right? Big egg, it's, it's tricky, right? We get lots of advantages uh, of doing things at scale, and we get corresponding disadvantages too. Um, and by the same token, big beekeeping um, has similar challenges, right? Commercialized, really big, really commercialized beekeeping um, is hard to do everything in the most optimal way for the bees, right? So I am really conflicted about that. I mean, do we need do we need agriculture to scale? I think it's pretty silly, and I know you guys have had topics on this topic, talk, talks on this topic before. It's pretty naive of us to think that small scale farmers market style gardening is really the right solution, or that all of us gardening in our own backyards. Is, is the way forward for all agriculture. I, I think we know that's, that's naive. Um, but we're gonna have to get better. And science has a part in that, and chemicals probably have a part in that, and small scale and symbiotic planting probably has a part in that. Um, increasing biodiversity, there's some, some trials they're doing with planting wildflowers or other native flowers um, in ditches um, and around the perimeter of agricultural fields. Um, there's lots of angles being tried, and we're going to have to find a balance, that's for darn sure. Neonicotinoids is another one um, that spikes and falls in newsworthiness. Um, I still don't think we know for sure um, whether that is, how big of a challenge that is to bees. We're finding things like 
bees are actually pretty attracted to fungicides um, and will collect that and bring it into their hives. So there's a piece here around management of your hives and then there's a piece around um, farmer education. Um, and like anything with chemicals, if you have someone who's using them improperly or irresponsibly or a farmer who's spraying while there's bees in the field, yeah, we gotta get that stuff figured out. But you know, agriculture and farmers are not diametrically opposed to pollination. They're not, they really need that. So as far as I'm concerned, um, agriculture, modern agriculture even, is concerned with, with pollination, with pollinators, um, not necessarily with wild bees. Is that kind of fair? Okay. Uh, my name is Graham Greenlee. Uh, we live here in Lethbridge. We have a large backyard with uh, a lot of different kinds of flowering plants in the yard. And we see a lot of bees in the, in the yard all summer long, yep. including uh, bumblebees. Yes. So I'm, I'm wondering what sort of numbers of bumblebees you expect to see in a colony. And I've never seen a bumblebee colony. What, what does it look like? Oh, my gosh. If you guys, if you have a chance, Graham, to come out to the um, bumblebee talk uh, next month with Dr. Ralph Carter. Uh, Bumblebees, bumblebee colonies are not large. They would usually be around kind of this size. They're not, they're not big. Um, the reason they're not big is because the colony doesn't need to survive over winter. They don't need food stores. So they don't make huge amounts of food to store the way honeybees do. So it's small. Um, the other wild thing about bumblebees is even amongst the workers, they can vary in size and, and how they look. So it's even hard to identify within one species to know for sure that that is the same species. Bumblebees are really fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know how many are for sure in a colony, but like I say, they're not large, maybe a couple hundred, something like that. Um, and lucky you if you've got them, it means you're doing a good job with your, your planting, and it means somewhere nearby, either your yard or somewhere nearby, there's a good spot for uh, habitat for them. So that's cool to hear. Good for you. Hi, Chelsea. Hi. Thank you. I'm Mary Shellington. Thank you for your talk. I'm a person who knows very little about bees. Uh, however, I'm sitting at the table with both Mark and Graham, and what Graham neglected to tell you is that he and Patty are, uh, are environmentalists, and they have quite the yard with all their kind of different irrigation and the catching of the rainwater and all that kind of stuff. So he's really into that. So some of my questions were answered by Mark and Graham. Uh, but I was interested in this uh, being a feminist, uh, this queen bumblebee that has, sounds like a feminist. And uh, uh, so my question to the table, which they, I think they've answered correctly, is how does she get pollinated? How do all these eggs get pollinated? Fer and fertilized? So, uh, uh, pardon? Fertilized? Fertilized, yeah. Yeah. yeah not pollinated, fertilized. Yeah. yeah, right, sorry. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and how then there was another question which people seem to think they knew the answer. How long does she live? So those are my two questions. Okay, awesome. We, we've, it only took us four questions to get to sex. That's that's great. Okay. So yes, there 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 is a feminist book in the works when it comes to bees. Uh, it is it is girls that run the world for sure in in uh, in in bees. 
Don't get me wrong, the drones, the males are very critical for their job, which is fertilization. Um, I, I can't really tell you about all of the mechanics when it comes to bumblebees, but I can tell you a little bit about honeybees, and it is, it is cool. So, the queen, when she emerges, um, let me go back. The queen honeybee gets to leave the colony twice in her life. The first is for her mating flight, right, party time, and the second is when either she swarms or she dies. So those are the only two, two times that she gets to leave. When she leaves to go on her mating flight, she'll fly up really high, and she will get fertilized by somewhere between 12 and 20 drones in that one flight. Um, it's, it's fairly horrific for the males. Um, once they mate with her, their genitalia uh, uh, comes apart from their body, and they die. Uh, and <laughs> it's, 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 this is, sorry, guys, this is a little graphic. Maybe I should <laughs> Uh, and then the next drone to mate with her needs to get that debris out of the way before he can do his part. So in that one mating flight, she will collect enough sperm uh, to last her her whole life. That's all that she needs. And she will actually come back uh, noticeably larger. Um, a, a virgin queen and a properly mated queen look very different. Um, and she stores that all in her abdomen. Um, and here's where it gets, I think, really neat. So the queen doesn't decide whether to lay a fertilized egg, um, which is a, a female egg, or an unfertilized egg, which is a drone egg. She doesn't decide that. The colony decides. What do we need more, workers or drones? If the colony is doing really well and is really strong, they'll start making bigger cells that is for drones. So what the queen does is she's going around about her business is she feels out the size of that cell and if it's a big cell, she will lay an unfertilized egg in there. Have I got this backwards, Joseph? That's right. Yeah. Um, and if it's a small cell, she'll lay a fertilized egg which will become a worker. So she can change those mechanics in her body and decide which egg to lay, uh, but it's based on what the colony thinks they need more of and they'll build more of those cells. Isn't that wild? So, and then longevity-wise, um, a, queen, a queen honeybee can live for five years, maybe even as long as seven years, um, in commercial beekeeping or even hobby beekeeping. Oh, this is going to sound horrible, too. We don't usually let them live that long. Uh, they become, they may not, they, they may start to run out of sperm as time goes on. Their laying pattern might get erratic. Um, they may not be producing enough pheromone to really keep the colony together. So she becomes a little bit less effective. Um, often the hive themselves will recognize that and will secretly make, help make a new queen, which then hopefully emerges and kills the old queen. Like this is serious soap opera stuff, right? Regicide, that's regicide. So, um, so that can happen or um, in big commercial uh, operations, usually after the first year or, this, or in the second year, they have a policy where they will requeen the hive, which means they put in a new young queen. And uh, yeah, off with her head. Uh, Terry Shillington, <clears throat> thank you, Chelsea, so much. Uh, I want to comment on something I thought I would hear more from you than what I have. Um, uh, I have, and I'm not a, um, a biologist or anything, but um, 
I, I have heard over the years or uh, maybe up to two decades, uh, uh, anxiety around some of the chemicals being used in agriculture that was, was reducing the bee population. And I think at one point our church had some, nationally had something strong to say about eliminating some of those chemicals. And uh, I didn't hear you mention that. In fact, you seemed quite um, confident that it was all well in hand. And I wonder if that's true in terms of the vast amount of chemicals that agriculture uses these days. Do we need to be more alert to chemicals that um, are toxic to bee populations? Yeah, so that's a great question, Terry. Um, so pesticides, pesticides is an overarching term, right? And underneath pesticides, there's all different kinds of sides that target different things, right? So for example, we have maybe a specialized herbicide that kills our dandelions. Um, we don't know everything there is to know about bee physiology and bee biology, um, but so far, it, it doesn't look like in the tests that they do that things like herbicides or fungicides um, or that, that type of chemical doesn't seem to have a major impact on bee health. Now, of course, this is a confusing, confounding issue, right? Um, it's likely that having, for example, a single source of food, like in a monocropped field, is probably more is probably a major detrimental factor in bee health, more than perhaps exposure to, for example, a herbicide. Now, there are pests, there are um, insecticides, right, um, that can be, can be used uh, mostly in commercial agriculture. For the most part, except for like wasp sprays, we're not using a ton of insecticides like on our lawns. Um, so in agriculture, there definitely is that. For the most part, if there are colonies of honeybees um, that are being used in commercial agriculture, the beekeeper and farmer sort of have it worked out about when they're going to have the bees there and when's a safe amount of time to let it settle before bringing them back. Um, they do not discriminate, though, against wild bees, right? So, uh, yeah, we do have to worry about it. We, we have to worry about all of the chemicals that we're using in agriculture, um, not to say we can just trust that they have got it all figured out for us, um, but I guess as a regular citizen, non-scientist myself, the impact on that that I feel that I have or that we have through petitions or protesting or boycotting, I feel is small. So I guess I'm just going to um, be cynical and a little despondent about it and just say, look, I'm going to focus on what I can focus on, and that's planting lots of flowers and not using chemicals on my own property and encouraging other people to do the same. I don't have the ear of uh, Bayer and Monsanto, but they, they know. They know this matters to us too, right? Um, agriculture will, will do things that are saleable, and if consumers are wanting things that are not heavily chemicalized, I don't know. I'm, I'm very cynical about the whole thing. I mean, organics isn't a lot better, as we know, so. That was really depressing. Let's talk about sex again. Bev, save us. Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Uh, I found your, your talk about the regicide, the get rid of the old queen and bring in the new, fascinating. Um, do they allow you in schools? And if so, do you get to tell that story? I think you should put together like a little um, a comic book that could be so given to the schools, you know, scientists in the schools, that'd be fabulous. 
So um, a, a, a comment and then two questions. A comment, we have uh, Katoni asters in our garden, local, seeded themselves. Um, the deer eat most of them, but we have a couple that are large, high enough that the deer can't get to the blossoms. And those are covered with every bee imaginable. Henny and I have counted, I don't know, dozens, dozens of uh, different species of bees on Katoni asters. So those are great. Oh, two questions. Um, one about the queen bee. I wonder, um, does, does the new virgin queen sting the old one to death? And could you tell us a little bit more about how the leafcutter bee saved agriculture? Okay. So the mechanics of the murder of the queen. <laughs> so this is, this is a really cool thing. Honeybee stingers are barbed like a fish hook right? Worker bees. So when they sting you, this is why they die when they sting you, because it gets stuck in your skin, and then she tries to fly away, and she gets eviscerated, right? Um, leaving behind the stinger in your skin, and um, a venom sac, and two pumps, or two, two muscles that comprise a pump. And what they do is, they alternately squeeze, which actually works the stinger further into you, and it continues to pump venom into you uh, until you get it off of there. So if you get stung by a honeybee, um, you will know because there will be something left on you, and you need to get that off so you don't get a full dose of venom into you. Now, queen bees have a smooth stinger. It's not a barbed stinger. And they are very unlikely to sting you. They, they do not have that stinger for the purpose of stinging you. They are not really about defending their colony. In fact, when we're pouring packages of bees in the spring, when we're putting, installing new bees, if it's a cold day, we'll often put the queen bee in our hand like this and close it up, not squish it, but close it up to, keep, to get her warmed up so that she will walk around once we put her in there. So she really doesn't want to sting you. The main purpose of that smooth stinger is to kill other queens. Yeah, and because it's not a barbed stinger, she can sting multiple times, right? So she can keep going if she wants to, and she does have a venom sac and, and so on. So yeah, that is why they have stingers and that is how they do it. That is how they kill other queens. And if she comes across a queen cell, uh, she will sting the, the pupating bee as well to try to kill it. Okay, and the other one was about leaf cutters. Um, so I presume that they saved the alfalfa industry in the 30s um, th through pollination, through increased yield and, and, and so on. I, I guess I don't really know for sure. Um, I just thought that was a great little sound bite that I included in here. So now I'm going to have to actually do my homework for next time. Thanks a lot, Bev. My name is Henry Heinen. I, I do live next to the Cooley, so I yes. have many acres of wild stuff. And I do have a beekeeper who puts his hives out every late spring and picks them up late fall. You may want to say something about when they store these square boxes and what they do to, for temperature and feeding them. And the second question is, I've read quite a bit about that some bees, especially in the east, have disease. And they really don't know what to do about it. Okay. So a couple of uh, real management questions there. So one is about overwintering and one is about disease. Overwintering, we didn't used to have to overwinter in Alberta. In the 70s, what commercial beekeepers would do um, was, what's the chemical, Joseph? What would they use? Anyway, at the end of the season, you'd harvest your honey, and then you'd kill your hives. Done. No big deal. 
then you're free to go south for the winter, do whatever you want to do, and you pour a new package of bees, you order them from California, you pour a new package in the spring, it's cost effective, away you go, another season. In the mid-80s, they closed the border between the U.S. and Canada to bee imports. Um, so they could no longer get cheap packages of bees from California. Um, at that time, the main concern was a varroa mite. Um, we could have a whole topic about, about bee diseases and pests. And in fact, if you come to Bee Club, we often do. Um, so they closed it because of varroa mites at the time. Um, we now have varroa mites in Canada. The border remains closed for other reasons. Um, um, okay, where was I going on this? Overwintering. Okay, so, but what it forced us to do was figure out how are we going to keep these little suckers alive, right? We can't, we can't afford $150 for a new beehive every spring for 500 or 5,000 colonies if you're a commercial beekeeper. So we overwinter them by making sure they have enough food, by making sure they are disease-free, making sure their population is strong enough, making sure that they have some insulation, although honestly most bees don't die from the cold. They're more likely to die from wet if it condenses and freezes inside of there. Um, we do those things. It's a complicated balance, and then we hope for, actually we hope for kind of a stable but cold winter. It's when it goes up and down like this, that's no good for them. So I could go on about that one. And then disease. Ontario versus here, east versus west, we all have pretty well the same stuff. The one thing they have going on in Ontario right now is a fairly new um, pest that they have been finding in the U.S., which is small hive beetle. Um, I don't actually know that it's a super, if, unless your hive is weak, I don't know that it's a super terrible pest, not like varroa mites, which we've been dealing with for decades and which become resistant to treatments as we start using them. Those are a real jerk. But we're, I'm cultivating some gratitude, right? I'm sure they have a purpose in this ecosystem. There's a real pain on our side. We have time, we have time for one question. Hi, uh, hi I'm Henning Mundell. And actually, it won't be a question. Okay. It'll be because the issue was raised just before about the leaf cutter bees. And one of the, I'm a retired agricultural scientist, but I'm a plant breeder, not an entomologist. But what really the leaf cutter bees did is they helped the develop of the alfalfa seed industry, not just the alfalfa production, but the seed industry. So that's where you needed the leaf cutter bees. But I do want to bring one other educational thing there, if I may. You sort of mentioned about the need of cherries uh, to require uh, bee pollination. Sweet cherries, that used to be the case, but you're not that old yet. Fifty years ago, the f uh, right in Summerland, the first self-pollinating uh, uh, sweet cherry was developed, Stella, and it was the, by the person I considered my plant breeding godfather. Uh, and I worked with him for two summers, and that was Dr. Lapping. And then that, going from there, it's gone worldwide so that even uh, sweet cherries can be self-pollinated. The uh, sour cherries typically are. Well, that's great news. Sour, uh, sour cherries typically are, uh, don't need other cherry types to for, pollinate. for pollination. Well, that's great news. So if we lose all of the bees, we'll still have sweet cherries. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, are there any other questions at this time? Chelsea, we haven't... Uh, Knut Peterson is my name, by the way. Uh, 
we haven't talked much about GMO. Uh, some of the GMO crops may not need pollinators, uh, I'm guessing, but uh, do you have any uh, thing to say about GMO in, in relation to bees? Hi. Uh, you know what, from the crop perspective, usually with, with bees, the main thing that comes up in topic is the, is the ones that have the insecticides um, in them already, right? So that's really that main one. My big interest with GM genetic modification is genetically modified bees. There's a fair bit of research going into, um, can, we, can we breed or genetically modify bees for a variety of reasons, sometimes production or pollination, sometimes disease resistance. Um, I don't know. I think it's. I guess my feeling on it is is curiosity and interest. I I don't I don't have a lot else to say about it. Thank you, Chelsea. Very informative.